You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with Mark Hutchinson, and he has tremendous experience on examining body parts, including the shoulder. And he's been doing this consistently at the American College of Sports Medicine annual meetings, where even though he's on the program two or three times for each of these sessions, there are people lined out into the street to try to get in. So it's a visual thing, and you can watch the video on YouTube, but we'll discuss some practice pearls relating to shoulder exam. Thanks for doing this shoulder podcast, Hutch. Absolutely a pleasure. What are the common mistakes that you find when you're teaching these workshops? What are the things you consistently come against, come up against and that uh, participants bring up to you? What are the challenges for examining the shoulder? Um, I think probably one of the uh, biggest challenges is that uh, uh, many, many patients or many, many examiners are just actually afraid to uh, embarrass the patient uh, to actually inspect the shoulder. Uh, it's very, very important for shoulder examination to be able to get a good look at the entire shoulder and the posterior scapula. And, and with that, you're going to be able to see muscle atrophy. You're going to see, be able to see movement of those structures. And to accomplish that in guys, in, 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 male, uh, in male patients, you simply have them take their shirt off, get a good look, make sure you insist that you do that. For women, you ask them to put a gown on that uh, covers them discreetly in the front, but they can wrap down uh, underneath their arms so you can completely expose their their posterior shoulders. Once you have a good view, um, I think it almost uh, encourages the examiner to say, okay, now I can do a complete examination and walk through things sequentially. So if I see see a common error, even in my own residents and students, it's uh, a... Basically, they, they, they forget that part. And the second piece of that, and I think it goes directly with it, is too often our examinations are simply from the front. Uh, you, you face up a patient. They say they have a shoulder problem. You look at things from the front when really probably at least half of your examination from, should be from the back, looking from posteriorly, assessing the scapula, assessing how the, the shoulder and the arm interacts with the core. And on the specifics of that, it's great you mentioned that issue of making both the clinician and the patient feel comfortable. A lot of women feel comfortable in a sports bra, but you're suggesting, if I understand you right, that that may not be helpful. No, actually, a sports bra is perfectly acceptable too, because most often um, I'm talking about uh, you know something that actually, if you have sleeves or something that covers the shoulders, um, a sports bra, because of the, the straps at the top, you really have a very good uh, uh, access to the posterior shoulder. Um, some of them have more material posteriorly, but even in those cases, uh, I think as long as you're comfortable, uh, and I, I will just talk out loud to the patient, say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move your sports bra a little bit to the side so I can see the the, the entire scapula bone. So I just kind of shift it with my hand. Uh, frequently with women with long hair, um, I'll either ask them or have them, or I'll help them move their hair to the front so I can inspect everything. The key point here is you just need to have good visualization. And so a sports bra works nicely. Um, a, a gown that exposes the posterior shoulders works nicely. The, the key is you just have to have that visualization. And if we jump into the challenges in the scenario of overuse tendinopathy, um, chronic shoulder pain, what tests do you find the best there? And then we'll probably move on to labral um, tests as a separate issue. So what about overuse, throwing pain and uh, repetitive shoulder pain in a tennis player, for example? 
Well, I think, you know, again, you're going to find out, uh, uh, you start off with history, and you're going to have that history of repetitive overhead use. Um, they're going to have more of an ache pain, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, with eccentric loading uh, of their muscles. Uh, and then what I will do is I'll, uh, you know, after I've checked range of motion, make sure that they didn't have a frozen shoulder and, and uh, uh, generally inspected the shoulder, I'll walk through specifically targeting the tendinopathy, which means I'm going to be looking at specific motor function. Um, you be, you, it's, it's amazing how many of the different muscles in and about the shoulder that you can isolate with specific testing. So you can uh, do a, a Napoleon test or a tummy pat test to isolate the subscapularis or a lift-off test off their posterior, uh, uh, off of their back. You can do an empty can test to isolate the supraspinatus. Um, you can do speeds and Jurgensen's tests to better isolate the biceps tendon. So all of those things, you want to be as specific as you can and try to target unique muscle groups um, to be able to identify which muscle or tendon is uh, does have the tendinopathy and is the, is the pain source uh, in that patient. Um, I find many times when I'm assessing the rotator cuff um, that uh, it's actually when they're dropping their arm. So I put their arm in into an abducted position assessing supraspinatus, so they're locked up there. They don't hurt so much because their deltoid is ten, uh, uh, helping them. But the minute they start on that downward motion and they're eccentrically loading the cuff, then that part really bothers them. And so I will look at all of those different uh, areas. There are certainly other special maneuvers you can do to try to uh, pinch on the cuff uh, or the, the, the areas that are uh, involved, something like a near impingement test or a Hawkins impingement test. Basically, these are just trying to irritate the most affected area of the, of the tendinopathy. And for rotator cuff, it's, it's the watershed area that's right near its insertion onto the tuberosity that's most commonly involved. And so as I walk through the tendinopathies, um, that's how I try to target them. But then uh, probably the, the biggest error uh, made by clinicians is that that's where we stop. And so we go, hey, you're weak in your rotator cuff. You have a drop arm test. Okay, your cuff is injured. But we forget to look at that whole picture and go back to the back of the shoulder to see if there was muscle atrophy in the cuff, to see how the scapula is moving, to see if uh, uh, scapular dyskinesia has led to um, uh, the problem of this tendinopathy. And so now instead of just saying, hey, you're a little weak in your rotator cuff, I'm going to do cuff strengthening exercises, you've actually went backwards and found the core problem. And the core problem being maybe how the, scapular's motion, the scapula is moving or potentially even farther down. Do they have a good balance and, and, and control of their lower extremity uh, that actually starts that kinetic chain all the way up to the shoulder blade down the arm leading to the problem. And so if you really want to be complete, you follow that kinetic chain in addition to targeting the specific muscle tendon that might be involved. That's great, Hutch. And even though it's hard to explain this on radio, as it were, um, we're both conscious that people can watch the videos on YouTube very easily where you talk through these tests one at a time in one minute, two minute clips. So we're really just trying to add perspective here from your 10 or 20 years of you know teaching this um, to get some of those practice pearls and what the challenges are 
given that people are watching the videos as well. So Hutch, we're both friends with uh, Ben Kibler and you can't talk about scapular dyskinesis without thinking of Ben. And I know you and he discussed many of these things together. So it's a logical place to remind the listeners that we have the podcast with uh, Ben Kibler on BJSM where Dr. Babette Plum, the tennis doctor, discusses issues with her. So we want to make this complimentary. And I think it gives us a chance to focus on an acute labral injury and management of that. So let's say the patient has fallen on the outstretched hand and thought that they'd recovered and it was you know, diagnosed clinically as a soft tissue injury, but you know, six months, nine months out, they're still having problems with shoulder pain and trouble sleeping on that side. What goes through your mind and what are the best tests you want to draw the listener's attention to in relation to the video clips? Yeah, I think uh, I would say that um, I have to look at the, that, that history of what went on, and I might be worried about tendinopathy, but I've just walked through that previous exam, and it didn't seem to be uh, uh, the source of their pain. Uh, if they tell me that they're having clicking uh, or they, they're having sensations of their shoulder going out of place, now I'm really more worried about shoulder instability uh, as well as potential labral, labral issues uh, or labral tear. And in those cases, then I'm going to target my exam in that direction. Again, as we've, we've said before, get that whole history. Do an f- entire examination with the range of motion. Look from the back, so we're looking at the scapula and looking at the kinetic chain. With all of that said, as I target that instability, um, uh, what you can do is realize that most shoulder instability is anterior or anterior inferior. And most, most occur and are made worse when the person is in an abducted and external rotation or, or a cocked position. And so I will put my patient up in that position and see if they have apprehension, see if they think their shoulder is going out of place. Uh, it's great to do that examination with the patient lying down. So you gradually get them up into that abducted, external rotated position. And they start saying, oh, I think my arm's going to go out of place. What you do is then push back on the, the humerus, reducing the ball and socket joint, and then if that provides significant relief, uh, that's an apprehension test, and that's a great way to do to, to make the uh, confirm the diagnosis of true shoulder instability. Um, other things you can do, not unlike the McMurray's of the knee, where we're kind of tri- twisting on the knee, trying to trap an unstable uh, cartilage tissue and feeling a click and a pop, you can do the same thing about the shoulder with a crank test and trying to feel for a, a, a mechanical pathology in the shoulder. Um, and, and if you feel that clunk or something going on, you realize that that's also probably a labral tear. Um, so I will look for all of those issues. Uh, probably the other key issue with instability is to make sure that they're not loose-jointed or that they're globally lax. And so really what you're looking at is somebody who has multidirectional instability. And so every patient I will examine for instability, I will always do a sulcus test, and I will draw their arm directly inferiorly and see if the ball of the ball and socket starts to sag inferiorly, leaving a, a little sulcus in the socket. If that's the case, um, I'm much more cautious about jumping to surgery. Uh, multi-ligament instability and multidirectional instability is very difficult to treat uh, surgically, and they should all be treated uh, with extensive rehabilitation, uh, strengthening the muscles, strengthening the core, strengthening the scapula before jumping to surgery. How does investigation help in these shoulder instability scenarios? 
again, I think that uh, my my approach for uh, using imaging in shoulders is not dissimilar from any part of my exam. By the time I get to imaging, I should pretty much have my diagnosis narrowed down 95 to 99% accuracy. And so the imaging is only going to confirm that. However, in the shoulder, there are certain facets that are going to make a big difference in terms of how we may treat things. So when I get x-rays of the shoulder, I'm going to look very carefully at an axillary view or an outlet view or a, a special views like a, a strike or notch view, some views that are going to look for a bony bank heart lesion. How big is that bony bank heart lesion? A dent in the back of the, the, the humerus or a heel sacs lesion? Because those types of problems uh, are a high risk of recurrence. They're much more likely to require surgery. And in fact, they may require specialized surgery uh, beyond simple arthroscopy and just tacking down a labrum. They may need some bony reconstruction to assure that the patient's going to be stable. Uh, regarding MRI, uh, MRI, again, it depends a little bit about how readily available it is. I, I laugh with my residents during the orthopedic board examination. You really can't get this, this question right or wrong because if you didn't get it, the, the examiner will say, why didn't you get an MRI scan? If you did get it, They'll say, why did you get an MRI scan? And the answer is uh, you need to use it to help clarify your diagnosis or be, do pre-surgical planning. And so if for me, with somebody with a, a instability, with a positive apprehension test, a positive uh, click, I'm sure that they have a bank heart lesion if they'd previously dislocated their shoulder. But I'm looking for, on an MRI and these other imaging, I'm looking for factors that are going to affect my surgical choices or affect that patient's outcome. It should not be to make the diagnosis. Making the diagnosis probably should be made with history and physical examination. Thanks, Hutch. And one clarification for some people, the term slap lesion and the term labral tear, are they synonymous? Well, actually, that's, I, I love the way we, we think together, you and I, because uh, I left out slap um, from labral lesions because a classic instability, a shoulder dislocation, 90% of the time is going to lead to a Bankart lesion or a torn labrum off the anterior inferior labrum. A slap lesion is, is actually a superior labrum uh, injury. It's commonly associated with overhead repetitive throwers and can be related to a distraction type of a lesion where the biceps anchor is pulled off the superior aspect of the glenoid. Um, in terms of clinical examination, in fact, uh, uh, there are probably about 10 or 12 more specific examinations that you can do to try to target the superior labrum and try to clarify it to be different than the uh, Bankart lesion or classic anterior shoulder instability. So um, things that I will do will be do, to do an O'Brien's test which is basically a crossover test. Oh, you bring the arm across the body with a thumb down. You resist their, their help them maintain their shoulder in that position. You resist by put, pushing the arm down. If that exacerbates their pain, then it's more suspicious of a slap lesion. If you put their thumb, turn, have them turn their thumb up, and that relieves their pain, then that uh, uh, helps confirm it um, uh, in terms of a slap lesion. Uh, you can do biceps provocation tests, 
which is basically putting the arm into this abducted, external rotated position that a pitcher would get themselves into. And then you find ways to put the biceps on tension. You uh, pronate the arm. You resist flexion of the arm. Uh, you resist supination of the arm, all which will pull on the biceps and probably try to provoke uh, 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 a, a, the, the slap lesion to be more painful. Uh, perhaps uh, one of the most favored tests is a, a, a Mayo shear test, or basically uh, you put the arm into this abducted external rotated position, and then you let it drop down uh, inferiorly, and that will commonly exacerbate uh, a slap lesion also. With slap tears, um, there is significant debate about how accurate any of these tests are. Uh, in the people that invented them, they like their test and they say that they're great. Uh, however, most people would agree that any one, that one of those tests in isolation probably is not a great confirmatory test. What I like to do is I actually start to group them together. I like to put, I do a biceps tension test. I do a compression test like an O'Brien's test. I do an, uh, a biceps provocation test. And if I have multiple of these that are positive, I can actually become growingly confident that I've made the diagnosis of a slap tear. That's great, Hutch. Um, you've really done a nice job of that. And uh, my recommendation for listeners would be to watch the videos and uh, listen to this in conjunction and obviously with reading as well. So before we finish, I would like to just clarify the first time shoulder dislocation issue because it's a hot topic and there's been some nice randomized controlled trials in the old days you know shoulder dislocation wasn't an indication for surgery you've suggested um in various parts of your conversation today that there are indications for surgery with shoulder dislocation can you just group them concisely for the learner to think about when they have someone who presents with a first time shoulder dislocation let's say a young person uh, a first-time shoulder dislocation, if you have imaging that shows a large bony bank card or you broke the glenoid, uh, if you have a large hill sacs lesion, um, these people are, are a high likelihood to have recurrent instability, and they should probably be fixed early. Um, in the military, there are some great studies that have shown first time for first-time shoulder dislocations, if you acutely go in and do the repair, the chance of recurrence, so these people are under age 20, which have a very high recurrence rate of shoulder instability, almost 90% chance of recurrence. If you do surgery early, it reduces their risk of recurrent instability to 10%. And so this younger population, high demand uh, 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 collision sport activity also may be a good indication for uh, uh, an acute repair of a shoulder dislocation or this bank cart lesion. 90%, 99% of the time, 90 90% of the time, uh, a shoulder dislocation will have a bank cart lesion. It's a very, very commonly associated. Um, and so now the older patient, 50 years old and older, what you want to look for is a, an associated cuff tear. Most of those won't have recurrent instability. And so then I wouldn't even put that in my, my game box to consider uh, uh, a first-time dislocation, I would make them prove that they were unstable. Last question, I promise, in relation to the shoulder, because it's a sneaky one. It's not even in the shoulder, really. The scaphoid has got attention in the last few years in terms of early surgery. So if people are in a situation where they do have access to high-quality surgery, 
Do you think that um, we need a rethink on the scaphoid management plan as was taught back in the day when I was doing medicine? Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the scaphoid uh, is, there's a number of different bones in the body that are high risk for non-union. Uh, they tend to be the bones that have uh, less circulation and lots of articular surface. The scaphoid is clearly one of them. Uh, and so a scaphoid fracture traditionally would be treated with immobilization as long as it was non-displaced. Uh, and some people, as much as a, a long-arm cast immobilization, not just a short-arm cast, feeling that, the, that they have less risk of non-union and a better rate of healing. Um, because of that uh, amount of immobilization and the associated atrophy that goes along with it, the dysfunction for the athlete for an extended period of time, people have looked, uh, specifically uh, uh, Dr. Slade has looked at an acute fixation of a scaphoid fracture. So uh, you go in immediately, you put a screw across it, and amazingly, that early surgery, you can mobilize your patients faster, the fracture heals faster, and for athletes, they get back to sport faster. And so there's certainly strong positive uh, outlook for an acute fixation of a, uh, of a scaphoid fracture. Now, one part of the question you ask me is that is assuming you have excellent surgeons who are very comfortable with that, that procedure uh, in a very selected group of athletes because many times if treated conservatively, these fractures will heal if they were non-displaced in the first place. And so you're doing surgery that may not have been necessary, the fracture would have healed by itself with time. The advantage of the surgery is you can get them moving faster, they have less atrophy, they're back to sport faster, and in fact there's less risk of uh, uh, non-union or uh, displacement of the fracture. So I think, I think fixation of, uh, early fixation of scaphoid fracture is clearly within the standard of care and of, of sports medicine in the world and can be considered if you have a high-quality hand surgeon uh, that's comfortable with it. Thanks a lot, Hutch. We'll leave it there. You've been listening to Mark Hutchinson, and you can find demonstrations of him examining major body parts on the BJSM video channel on YouTube and also on the education tab on the BJSM homepage. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.